you want to be finding your way to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 9 through 12 this morning. Man, it was good to be out last week, have a chance to kind of rest, recover, spend some time with family, uh, not catch fish. And so keeping that streak alive, uh, not sure how, but man, managed to be super successful at not catching fish. And so, so successful, you would think that I'm trying not to catch them, which is not the case. But uh, it is good to be back with you in wrapping up these Beatitudes this morning. Hey, let me pray for us once again, ask God's blessing upon this time. Father, we are uh, a people desperately in need of the reminder and the challenge located in the Beatitudes. I thank you for the ways that you have uh, really just wrecked my heart this week, studying these and recognizing how just impoverished I am at adequately displaying these. And so God, I thank you for that the grace, that mercy that you sustain us in the midst of our inability, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, are bringing all parts of us under your control. So God, I pray for our humility. I pray for our meekness. And I pray that you would awaken our hearts to the reality of your existence. And that each and every day. Father, this morning I pray for our gathering that you would help us to be a people formed by you, dedicated to you. That we would not be pursuing our own agendas, but that we would only pursue your kingdom. Father, this morning we continue to ask for revival in our city that men and women would come to know you, that they would surrender their lives to you. And so towards that end, we pray for the other churches of our community and the efforts that they are joining us and entering into. And I pray for their pastors, that you would help them to be men completely sold out to you, that they wouldn't live for the praise or adulation of their flock, but that they would serve them well as they serve you well. And I pray for their stamina, for their encouragement, and pray for their families. And we pray for the churches that that when gossip or bad reputations or whatever comes up, that we would be quick to argue on their behalf, that we would be those who are invested in the other churches of our community, not seeking to tear them down, but to build them up. We are indeed joined together with them, collectively, the bride of Christ. Father, I pray for our time this morning that you would awaken our minds, that you would soften our hearts, and that you would bring us into just a deep reflection on this incredibly challenging teaching here at the end of the Beatitudes. You would help me to communicate it clearly, that you would help us all to submit ourselves to the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, let me just remind you by word of kind of introduction. If, if you've not been here the last couple of weeks, we have started a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. But when Jesus begins this, he starts with eight or nine, depending on how you want to count them, characteristics of the internal quality of the Christian's life. Now, the easy way to read these is to look at this and say, man, this is for someone else. Like, this is for super spiritual people. This is for those people that come not to church just on Sunday morning for Sunday school, but they go to life group, they go on mission. Um, maybe God calls them to be career missionaries. He calls them into full-time ministry. And so you kind of remove from yourself the culpability, the responsibility of having these actually be present in your life if that's what you're doing, let me just candidly tell you, you're wrong. 
Like that, just, just simply put, if you've kind of given yourself a buy and a pass and you're doing this and saying, this is for somebody more spiritual, this is for somebody really more into the Bible, me, i really just about kind of Christ saving me, and so these things aren't on me, you're wrong. Like these are all of us. What Jesus describes here is normative Christianity, not exceptional Christianity. So there's no, no like beatitudes for the lazy Christian, right? Like come to church one, one Sunday out of the month, you know, give a tenth of 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 a percent of the tip that I left at Chili's last week for my tithe and be like, hallelujah, God bless you. You know, like there's no list like that where you can kind of just kind of ease through Christianity. So he hits us all. This is an affront to us all. This is an attack on all of our hearts. And this is calling all of us to bow down in submission to him. This is applicable for all of us all the time. You understand? So he goes through and he, if you remember, he began this list and he said, first thing you need to know is you need to be poor in the spirit. Effectively, you need to be wrecked and brought low and recognize that there is nothing good in in and of yourself that attains to the righteousness of God. And that's a good starting place. In fact, that's the only starting place for any of us. So he's been moving through and just kind of just kind of systematically destroying strongholds in our hearts. And finally, he makes it to these last three. And he starts off and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Man, we see this and, and there are a couple of different ways to understand it and to look at it. One of them is certainly a horizontal application. The other one being a vertical application. But when we look at it, many of us have the mistaken assumption that what he's talking about is peacekeeping, Right? What's the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping? Peacekeeping assumes you just want to maintain the status quo. You don't want to do anything to interrupt uh, how good somebody else's life is. You don't want to do something that could ruffle the feathers because you want to maintain and sustain the peace. And so you see something happening over there. You see some sin in someone's life. You're like, like, I could talk to them, but it doesn't seem to be a super devastating sin. So we're just going to let this one slide for a little bit. And maybe, maybe if it gets to the point where it's just egregious and foul, then I'll send them an anonymous letter. And I'll be like, hey, bro, you got this thing going on in your life. And just so you know, a concerned anonymous person who somewhat knows you but not close enough to call themselves a friend and is too much of a coward to have actually spoken to you wants you to know about that, okay? Because I want to sustain peace. Man, we got to understand this. He calls us to make peace. And it's a decidedly different application. You see, one of the things Jesus presupposes in this is that peace doesn't exist in large quantities around us. So we recognize between husband and wife, between parents and kids, between you and your coworkers, between you and those people in your community, there is a tremendous amount of frustration. There's a tremendous amount of kind of discontinuity where it's just, just friction all the time. And so this is what Jesus calls Christians to do to step in the middle of those situations and seek to remedy them. You recognize this is what he's called you to do. Now, this is terrifically difficult, right? Because most, for the most part, I want to stay in my bubble of kind of these are the things going on in my life. I've got a son who doesn't eat really well. I've got a son who says things I wish he wouldn't. And I've got a son who doesn't have any idea what the word secret means in family-only consumable, Right? And so this is, this is the realm that, that I most am comfortable operating in. But what does Jesus do? He calls us to step right in the midst, right in the mess of other people's lives. And in the midst of this, in the midst of their frustrations, to seek to bring peace. 
to seek to bring peace. This is the call on your life. This is the call on my life. Now, for those of you in here, let me just speak candidly, who are incredible busybodies, like you love knowing other people's business, and you say, finally, I've legitimized the calling God has given me for calling everybody and telling everybody's good news or bad news. This is also not the case. Because what we recognize, if you are spreading gossip, if you hear some salacious tidbit, tidbit about someone else or some organization or some church or some family, and it just burns inside of you and your first inclination is to call someone else to talk to them about it, did you know so-and-so wears a toupee? <laughs> I don't see anybody with a toupee on this morning. And so, did you know so-and-so, did you know so-and-so is leaving their wife? Did you know so-and-so cheated on their husband? Did you know so-and-so got kicked out of school? Did you know so-and-so got a DWI? Did you know that so-and-so uh, OD? Did you know that so-and-so did this? You're working against the peace God desires to bring. You see, the investment he calls and the prerogative he gives us in being peacemakers necessarily militates against gossip. It pushes back against gossip because what does gossip do? It stirs up strife. It stirs up a lack of trust. It doesn't foster a beautiful community. It destroys it. And so maybe you are going to hear something. Maybe you hear something about me, my wife, my family, or somebody in this church Let me just give you a really simple corrective to gossip. This is really simple. Like the dumbest among us can get this, right? I figured this out this week. Go talk to that person. Man, I heard this about you. Is that true? No, I don't kill cats anymore. I gave that up for Lent. But you did. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so that part's true. You just don't do it anymore? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we recognize how directly going to someone still allows us to be invested with them, but to be a peacemaker and not one who's facilitating false narratives. So this is what he calls us to do, to be those who promote, who instigate, and who activate peace. Now, where do we get this from? You see, we don't get this just from this idea that Jesus looks out and he sees the multitude and he says, man, there's going to be problems over the next three years. So let me just tell them to be peacemakers. You see, when he goes out there, there's already been several different prophecies about Jesus and and kind of who he is. Now, the most famous of these is found in Isaiah 9, 6. And let me just read it for us. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, on the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. So we recognize just with Jesus and kind of who Jesus is, that he is this one who would bring peace. The prophet continues this vein in Zechariah 9 and 9 and 10. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout to the Lord, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. This terrific idea that in the midst of God's plan and purposes for humanity is to bring peace. You know, especially interesting in the time of the day Jesus was speaking, there's this understanding that when the Messiah shows up, he's going to set everything straight and he's going to do that by bringing the hammer 
He's going to do that by bringing back this fantastic military might to Jerusalem. He's going to do that by helping them find their identity, destroying the Romans, and really establishing, in the, establishing themselves. So you can imagine then how incredibly counterintuitive it was to their expectation when he stands there and says, you make peace. There's always this thought, no, 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 no. We're going to bring the pain. We're going to establish righteousness. We're going to establish our rule. We're going to establish our sovereignty. And we're going to do this with the sword. But Jesus stands up there and he calls them not to make war. He calls them to peace. And in this same vein, he continues to call us. In fact, the apostle Paul writing in the book of Colossians said these words about him. He says, he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is over all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or on earth. How did he do this? He says he made peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the peace that you and I are ultimately called to bring isn't just a cessation of animosity between a husband and and his wife, between siblings, between parents and their kids, between those in our community. But the ultimate and the everlasting peace that we're called to bring extends from the work Jesus did on the cross. See, the Bible paints it in this amazing way. It says, you and I, we did not have peace with God. In fact, we were all set apart in enemies of God because we pursued ourselves. We pursued our own agendas. In fact, humanity has been doing this since the very beginning. You see, God created a perfect existence, and what happened? Humanity rebelled against that perfect existence. We sinned against the holy God who created all things. Because he created all things, he gets to be in charge of everything. And so this God who created everything, who gets to be in charge of everything, we rebelled against him, and we are rebelling against him still. And so the primary way that we seek to bring peace is by alerting people to the problem that there is no peace between them and God outside of the blood of Jesus. So walking up to somebody and alerting them to the fact that there is good news for them, that Jesus died for them, without first alerting them to the fact that there is a real issue, there's a significant impediment in the relationship between them and God, and that being their sin, there's no understanding then for them for peace. So as peacemakers... We have to first alert people, direct their attention that there is a significant issue between them and God, and it is them. How many relationships have you been in where somebody breaks up with you and says, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's not you, it's me. God effectively looks down from heaven and says, well, I'm sorry, it's not me, it's definitely you. <laughs> right? And so evangelism, in some sense, we are seeking to communicate to that people and say, it's not him, it's you. It's not him, it's you. And he recognizes how fouled up and messed up you are, that your life is just a complete mess. You're chasing your tail and all these things, and you don't know which way is up and which way is down. You care nothing for him, but he cares everything for you. He sent his son Jesus, and you didn't even recognize you needed peace with God, but God sent his son Jesus to bring peace between him and you. He let his son Jesus die on a cross, and then he raised him up again from the dead. And it's on the basis of his gracious act towards you that you're now able to approach him and to receive and accept the forgiveness that he extended you that you weren't even aware you needed. So he writes and he says, this is the ministry I'm calling you into. If you're going to take my name, if you're going to be a follower of me, then you're going to be a peacemaker. 
And in this, he says, the peacemakers shall be called the sons of God. We receive our sonship and our daughtership from God. And being a peacemaker doesn't make us a son of God, but a son of God, one who is forgiven, is a peacemaker. See how that works. Now let me move to some really cheery news. He goes on and he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Persecuted for righteousness sake. You see, there's a real distinction and a difference between just receiving persecution, receiving kind of animosity towards you, and receiving animosity towards you on the basis of righteousness. Now, Jesus isn't talking here. He said, blessed are you, or blessed are those who are persecuted, and just leave it. He turns and he says, there's a special class of people. There's a special, special situation where you might find yourselves being considered to be blessed and having fullness of life. And that is those who are persecuted for the display of righteousness. Peter describes this kind of, this display of righteousness in 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4. Now, Peter writes to people who are not popular in their community. Christianity is kind of this aberrant belief set. Nobody likes it. Nobody's accepting of it. So this is what he writes to them. He says, the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Effectively saying, look, there are Christians and there are Gentiles. He splits the whole world into two groups. He says, that time is over. The time is past for doing what they want to do. And then he describes it. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless, lawless idolatry. What is he describing? Peter doesn't look out and say, look, you got a bunch of jacked up people in your midst, have nothing to do with them. In essence, he's saying, remember what you used to do? All your friends that you used to hang out with, they're still doing these things. But the time has passed for you to be a part of this. Verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. That's what Peter's explaining. He said, before you came to know Jesus, there was a way of life that you engaged in. And for each one of us this morning, this is true for you as well. Before you came to know Jesus, you pursued, and then whatever it is, right? You pursued pride, pursued popularity, you pursued excellence in the workplace. I was driven, by like, you know, just kind of whatever it is, drugs, sex, money. Pursuing these things. This is my identity. This is who I was. Peter steps in and he says, that time is no more. And since that time is no more, those activities in you have to stop. Because that's not who you are anymore. And when those activities stop and when that behavior stops and you're still hanging around that same group of people, they're going to malign you. They're going to say bad things about you. And that's okay. Doesn't mean you quit hanging out with them. Doesn't mean you cut out all these people out of your lives. But this is the way this is going to go. Because, as Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you on account of righteousness. Now, some of us have sought to be incredibly accommodating to lost people in our lives. And so there is almost no distinction between the way you talk, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you engage with your family, the way you are at school, the way you are at Walmart, the way you are on vacation. There is no distinction 
between you and a lost person. And so there is zero persecution for you in your life. So we have this mistaken assumption that persecution is a bad thing. And persecution for sure isn't. Jesus doesn't write and say, man, whenever you are persecuted, be happy about the fact that you're being persecuted. Persecution is a good thing. He's not describing that. What he's saying is persecution is a part of what it is to be a Christian. Quit avoiding persecution. Live a vibrant display of what it is to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ and quit keeping it a secret. Most of us don't ever experience persecution because we keep it a secret. Man, you know how far you can go in conversations with certain lost people, right? Like, you know how far you can push in these conversations and they're willing to accept it. Like, you can quietly bow your head and silently... No indigestion. Like, you know you can do that before a meal and your friends will be like, that's weird, just eat, your food's there. But if you're to say, hey, look, I'm going to pray, do you have anything I can pray for you about? Now they're like, whoa, I don't know how I feel about that. Your friends go out and, 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 and they drink to the point of intoxication, so you stop drinking at some point, and they say, come on, have another one. You're like, man, I can't. Well, why not? Are you driving? No, I'm not driving. I, just, I, I, think, it's, I think it's sinful to, to drink to the point of being drunk. I'm sorry. You're introducing awkwardness for them. Righteousness. And pursuing righteousness is our namesake. This is who we are. Our righteousness lived out in the midst of community should lead to some sense of ostracism. That should lead to some sense of, man, what is wrong with these people? Why don't they engage in these practices? Why is their speech different? Why is the way they have their families different? Why is the way they spend their money and give to charities different? Why is the way they give their time different? And you say, man, I pursue Christ in his kingdom. I want my life to be righteous before him. Now, what Jesus has done thus far, there's this ability, I think, within us to kind of keep it at arm's length. It's because if you read through the Beatitudes, what has he said? He said, blessed are the, blessed are those. And he's done this repeatedly. This is kind of how he's addressed it. But when he moves into verse, when he moves into verse 11, there's no these and those. It's not remote. It is up in our face and present. And they would have gotten this. So the Greek shifts from kind of blessed are those, and then it moves directly, and it says, blessed are you. Now, I want you to understand something. This blessedness that he's referred to over and over and over again, of being poor in spirit, of being meek, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and all these various things, these aren't meant for somebody out there. They're meant for you in here in your heart. This is what he's describing. And if somehow this has been lost on you and you haven't picked up on this, pick it up now. Because in verse 11, Jesus deals an incredibly difficult teaching to us. He says, blessed are you. And the way he describes it, it's this continued state of blessing that moves over the course of our lives. And look at the three things that he says. He says, it's when others revile you, when they persecute you, and when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. For what reason? Everybody say, on my account. This is the same thing that he said previously. So up in verse 10, he described it as being for righteousness sake. And here he says, it's on my account. What Jesus describes in here, we are blessed. We are in a state of blessing when we suffer for Jesus. Not when we suffer for our own stupidity. 
Some of you, the reason that you suffer is because you don't graciously live out a righteous display of what it is to follow Jesus. You are an obnoxious jerk of a Christian, and everybody knows it. This is why you have no friends, and nobody wants to sit with you at the lunch table, right? And so you walk up, and you're like, oh, Jesus wouldn't eat rye bread. Mm -mm 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 -mm. I got my Ezekiel bread. Oh, 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 Jesus wouldn't drive five miles over the speed limit. I know for a fact he would. Jesus wouldn't do that. And, and so you're just, you're just obnoxious with your faith. You're beating people up in this understanding. And man, that is not the way that he calls us to live. You know how I expect a lost person to behave? Sinfully. I expect a lost person to behave sinfully. I don't expect that mess out of a Christian. So I find a lost person, they're engaging sinfully. I'm gracious and I'm kind and I'm loving towards them. And I have no expectation that, they'll deal, that they will deal that back to me but I continue to extend grace to them, continue to seek to be a peacemaker with them. And it's different with Christians. It's different with Christians. Unfortunately, one of the ways that many of us will experience persecution is at the hand of our brothers and sisters in Christ. When Valor and I were in Prague, when we first got there, we began to partner with another organization that ministered all over the whole country. And so I would do three and four Bible studies a week for them, I would travel over the country with them, lead retreats, and, and do evangelism on college campuses, <clears throat> and, and have people in our home, and just, we worked with them nonstop, just every week, giving countless hours to this organization, this ministry. And then some dynamics changed on the, the team, the company that we were working with, and we got a new supervisor, and we shifted from that, and we were going to plant a church. And so we started a church, and so I had a meeting with the guy, the guy that I work with, my liaison. And I said, hey, look, just so you know, things are going to be changing. In the fall when this rolls around and we relaunch uh, Bible studies on this campus because it had, it had died, all our students had moved off, they'd all gone back home. Any further new works that we begin are going to be through our church and not through your parachurch organization. And there was a complete misunderstanding in language. And he was a very gifted English speaker, but something got lost in translation. So much so that a week later, a meeting was held for all the national partners in this organization. So 50, 60 people are invited. I'm not invited. And what the meeting said was these Beasleys, this Matt and Valerie Beasley, they're seeking to steal students from us. They're seeking to come into our Bible studies and steal students from us. And this is what Americans do. And so what they did and what they decided was that nobody from that organization was ever allowed to talk to us again. Not allowed to work with us, not allowed to go to our apartment, not allowed to be seen with us. They severed all times. And the way I found out about this is one of these students who I'd been discipling, I'd met with him for over a year, he came to me and he asked the question, are you doing these things? that I've heard that you're doing. I said, Voita, you know me. You've been to our church. You know we're not doing these things. He said, I didn't think so. Wasn't invited. I didn't get to speak into it. But we encountered incredible persecution from brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can tell you, it took seven months to clear up that mess. In fact, about a week before we left country, my liaison with uh, the Czech organization came to me and he said, we were wrong. We misunderstood. 
I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? See, persecution happens so frequently within Christian circles. It's because we take our perception of how things should be and we make them the ultimate thing. We see this happen over the history of the church. More recently, we see it happen with hymns and contemporary music. We polarize and we speak down to those who have an opposite perspective and opinion. The way people dress when they come to church, right? For years, if you didn't wear a suit and tie to church, you were comfortable, but you were also ostracized, right? And so we moved through that. For years, and in fact still, if you're a certain race, if you look a certain way, you need to go to this church, not to that church. We continue to find a variety of different ways to create smaller and smaller circles for us to stand inside and not invite others into But what we see in this, man, I can tell you what we saw a glimpse of in For the City is what it looks like when we quit talking bad about people on the other side of the street, when we quit talking bad about other churches, we find more and more ways to work together. We find more and more ways to be impactful together. We waste so much time, talent, and ability persecuting other Christians and penalizing them for past sins. Can I beg you? Stop it. Stop it. We're not the enemy. And when we do those things, he absolutely wins a victory. Now look at what he calls us to do. He said, blessed are you when these various things happen to you. He said, others revile you when they speak poorly against you. So they look at Jesse and say, man, talk about a no-talent hack. And then they, they <laughs> you were there, sorry. <laughs> and, 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 and then they say something that you just absolutely love, and they're like, oh my goodness, have you eaten so-and-so's cooking? <laughs> and when they go on and do that, and, and maybe you're cooking in a, in a homeless shelter, maybe you're doing these things, and you want to glorify God, and this is the way you're doing it, like, man, don't go there. Look at the way they run their lines. Look at the way this goes. Look at the way the conversations they have. Look at their funding structure. And so they begin to speak poorly begin to, begin to talk bad about you this idea of persecute is really this idea of pursuing so you're being pursued negatively and jesus looks at it and he says blessed are you when this happens on my account and then lastly he says and when they utter all kinds of evil against you now notice here he says falsely if there is something true and ugly about you and someone says it out loud that is not persecution That's not persecution. If you have some heinous sin personally in your life and your private sin becomes public and given enough time, it will become public. And somebody has the audacity to ask you about it. Hey, are you addicted to porn? And they ask you about it. They're not persecuting you. They're saying something true. Now, if they say something false, They spread some false rumor. This is persecution. But still in the midst of this, what does Jesus say? Blessed are you. When it's falsely and when it's on his account. This is what he calls us to do. Let me show you a picture of a posture of what it looks like to respond well to persecution. Early church had just gotten started. The apostles are running out and they're just verbally vomiting on everybody that will stand still long enough to hear the gospel. Just Oh my goodness, this guy Jesus, last week, mob, killed him. Three days later, rose again. Ah! 
Like this, they can't contain it. This is, their, this is their MO over and over and over again. And so what happens? They get in prison. And what happens then? An angel comes and sets them free. And they're like, oh, man, things are happening super fast. And so they're out there. They're wandering around. They go back to the temple. They've been imprisoned. The angel set them free. I imagine that's amazing. I've never been there. And so the angel goes out and he set them free. And they are found again in the temple. So they're brought back in. And the Jewish authorities say, basically, what gives? Like, you were in prison, we told you not to do this anymore, we brought you back in, why are you doing this? And he said, well, we have to trust God, we have to follow God and not men. So what happens? They get beaten. They take the, uh, the whips and they whip them 39 times, each of them 39 times. Blood pouring out, skin torn away from, from bone, skin just hanging on their bodies. And look what happens. Verse 40, when they called them in, they beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Disciples go out. This is the moment they can choose how to respond. They choose to look back and say, man, those guys are idiots. I can't believe they did that to us. And they can sit around, and they can spend hours talking about how bad and how stupid and how ugly those people were to them. But what do they do? It says they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They rejoiced. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. This is the posture of one who's persecuted. It's not that we sit and we bemoan the persecution. It's not that we look in that because you see that when we are persecuted, it gives us an indication of whose we are. Persecution reminds us whose we are. We recognize that when we are persecuted, it's an indication to us and to those around us that we belong to Jesus. And persecution, secondly, tells us where we are going. If this life was all there was, if this is like the best it was ever going to get, man, I would stay home and cry on my pillow all day long. I'd be swapping out pillows and turning them around because I would be crying all the time. We are comforted in that it is so much better than this life. This is not all there is. So he turns. In verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad, giving this idea that we should be overcome with rejoicing. The very manner and, and, and the manifestation of how we live should be just over and over and over again rejoicing, over and over and over again, uh, just, just, just kind of bounding down the streets. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. There seems to be this idea that things should be better for us. Things should not be this hard for us. So historically, he gives us the example. He says, great is your reward in heaven. And so they treated the the prophets before you. Jesus was persecuted. All the prophets listed in the Bible are persecuted. Christians the world over are persecuted. And we here live in this society where we are able to live out Christianity almost unhindered. And when somebody looks at us in such a way that we feel some tinge of judgment towards us, we recoil at what we suppose to be persecution. Persecution tells you whose you are and where you're going. And it should be normative 
for us in the Christian life. Would you join me as we pray? Father God, we thank you that some of us have been allowed to suffer. God, that some of us have stood up well under persecution. So again, I pray for us that our picture of Christianity and the way we live our lives would be more and more robust, that we would not give ourselves to anonymous Christianity, that we would not shirk or pull back at persecution. Father, we pray for those within this room in the hearing of this who have yet to submit themselves to Jesus, and that they would recognize that they don't have peace with God, but that they can through the shed blood of Jesus and his cross. So God, we pray for them, we pray for us, that we would be a people who, having heard your word, will be responsive. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.